0: Ephesians, we now get to chapter 3, and I'll start reading from verse 1. "'For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly,' When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open these words that you have written, that you revealed to your apostles so long ago, and you would apply them to our heart by your Holy Spirit, that we might benefit from them. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a child, I loved crayons. I wonder if there's any kids out there who also like crayons. And, you know, I used to love the box of crayons. I mean, what? It used to maybe start with a box of basically eight crayons. But it goes up from there, you can get a box of 24 crayons or 64 crayons. And there are so many different colors. Every time the box gets bigger, there's more and more shades. When I was in seminary, I got to audit a class, a biblical counseling class, about counseling children and adolescents, and one of the things we learned was how you can help children express what they're feeling by drawing. And so we had to do an activity with crayons, and I was so excited. I could finally live out my childhood dream. I could go to the store and find the box with 256 crayons had all the colors I could imagine, some I couldn't even imagine or tell the difference between. And, you know, I really, I was the one with the most crayons in the whole class. (laughs) Felt really good. Well, in this passage, we're going to see that God's wisdom is described as many-colored. There's something about having all those crayons that expresses a richness that you wouldn't have if you just had three or four different colors. And God's wisdom is like that, Paul says. And the way that we see that is in the church. So we'll come back to that as we look at our passage today. Before we jump in, though, the structure of the passage is a little weird. A few words about that. Last week, we heard Paul tell us about how Jesus, in his crucifixion, destroyed the hostility, broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and that he's now united them together into one church. Now, this is all building up to a prayer that seems like it starts in verse 1 of our chapter. For this reason... Because of everything that God's done in Jesus, everything I just told you, you know, I'm going to pray, is how we would think it should go. But instead, Paul ends up going on a tangent. Um, and you know, when we come back next week at verse 14, when we come to for this reason again, we'll get the actual prayer. But you know, I don't know. Paul must have been pretty distracted sometimes. How do we have a tangent in the letter? I don't know. But here it is. He goes on a tangent. Why do you think that is? Well. He starts to pray, he says, for this reason, and then he describes himself, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on your behalf. In other words, this isn't just some rando praying for you. Paul wants them to know that he's so passionately committed to them that he has become a prisoner. He's already been a prisoner for several years, and he's done it all for them. That's how much he cares about them. And then I think, I think this is what happens, I think he stops himself and realizes, wow, that's actually kind of an upsetting thing to say. You know, I've been in prison for years for you. Um, and you know, put yourselves in these people's shoes a bit. Ryan talked last week about this Jesus killing the hostility between Jew and Gentile, but that didn't mean, of course, that there hadn't been conflict between these groups in the church. And every time... Paul was the one standing up for the Gentiles. Now, this church in Ephesus, the people getting this letter, were mostly Gentiles. And that means Paul was their advocate. You know, when people wanted to deny them uh, their rights as full members of God's people, Paul was the one who stood up for them. But he's been out of commission for several years. He's been in jail. I wonder how they felt about that. Did they feel afraid? Adrift without Paul's leadership, maybe worried about what was happening to him. So Paul breaks off mid-sentence here and he goes on a tangent. And it's a very personal tangent about who he is and what God has called him to do. He wants them to make sure that he wants to make sure that they get his imprisonment in the right perspective. Um, So that's what we'll be covering in the sermon this morning: this tangent. And we're going to see that in three points. Point number one, Paul's message is the mystery of Christ. Point number two, Paul's story supports his message. And point number three, the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church. So we're going to see Paul's message, we're going to see Paul's story, and we're going to talk about the manifold wisdom of God. Okay, point one, Paul's message is the mystery of Christ. Um, a couple words about this word mystery is a popular word in Jewish religion at Paul's time. It comes especially from the book of Daniel. Maybe you remember a story where the king has this terrifying dream, but none of his astrologers or magicians are able to tell him the meaning of the dream. Um, but Daniel is, not because he's so smart, but because God reveals it to him. So the point is, this is not the kind of mystery like Sherlock Holmes that you have to be very smart in order to figure it out. You know, we would see the answer if we weren't so dumb, but Sherlock Holmes is really smart. so we can... No, this is not that kind of mystery. In fact, this is a mystery that nobody can figure out because it's hidden until God reveals it. And then when God reveals it by His Spirit, then everybody can understand it. Um, so these spiritual things that Paul's talking about here... They're not things that you can figure out through brilliant philosophy or religious sensitivity. They need to be revealed by the Spirit. Paul says that in verse 5, that it was revealed by the Spirit to the apostles. And in verse 3, he says, it was made known to me by revelation. The writers of Scripture needed the Spirit to show this truth to them, just as we need the Spirit to help us understand it. The Ephesians would have been aware of a different kind of mystery— There were a group of religions at the time, a whole gaggle of popular cults that offered this special secret mysterious knowledge. It's not so different to what the the, the, uh, con job the Scientologists are running today. If you buy the special platinum membership, we will tell you the secret knowledge about how your ancestor was an alien or something like that. That's not the kind of mystery that Paul has going on here. Um, Yes, this mystery has been hidden in the past, Paul says in verse 5 that it wasn't made known to the sons of men of other generations. In verse 9, he says it was a plan hidden in God for all ages past. But now that it's been revealed, and it hasn't just been revealed to Paul, it's also been revealed, verse 5, to his holy apostles and prophets. In the previous chapter, Paul said that these apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. So this mystery is something that's given to the whole church. It's something the church publicly proclaims. It's not Paul's private possession, but something that belongs to everyone. Okay, so what is this great mystery then? Paul says in verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, Paul says that Gentiles are three things there, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. And the English actually conceals one of Paul's favorite moves, Ryan's already mentioned it, just taking the Greek word with and sticking it on the front of a word. Paul loves to do that. So, what he actually says here is that the Gentiles are with heirs, they are with body, and with partakers. With who? Well, evidently with the Jews. And how do, we ha- how do they have this unity with the Jews? Well, it's in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that Gentiles are included with Jews in the church. Basically, Paul's repeating what we talked about in the last chapter. That's probably what he means when he says that uh, he's written br- something briefly about this. You know, some people uh, have seen this as referring to a different letter, but it could just be the words he's... Already written, like I just I've just written it for you, and he talks about them reading it and understanding it. In a sense, he's kind of stopping and underlining what he just said before. He's like, I hope when they read this letter out in church that you'll understand what I'm talking about. Um, so we're you know we're covering some of the same ground we did last week because Paul wants to make sure it gets through to us. And you know, coming to accept this reality was a process. For the early church. This is despite the fact that this truth was actually foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In Romans 16, Paul says that although the mystery has been kept secret for many ages, it's been made known to all nations now through the prophetic writings. You know, Paul was reading his Old Testaments and he found things like Genesis 12, where God tells Abraham that all of the families of the earth, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed in him. But well, you see, no one was able to really understand this until Jesus came. When Jesus came after his resurrection, he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you might think, okay, here we go. Now Jesus is telling us it's for all nations. Go back, read your Old Testaments. All of the passages like the cult of worship today, that have nations in them. That's the point. But what happens? That's not the end of it. Instead, Jesus has to give Peter a special vision so that he knows he's supposed to go talk to Cornelius the centurion, the Gentile, and treat him as a fellow brother. Okay, well, that's probably the end of it, right? Like Jesus himself gives Peter this vision about how the Gentiles are included? No, in Acts 15, the church is having a big controversy about whether the Gentiles should be included. Every step of the way, uh, it seems like God had to keep pushing the church into this new reality. You know, Paul himself was at the middle of that conflict in Acts 15, and so it makes sense now that he turns to his own personal story and says, shows how this mystery is connected to his story. So, point two: Paul's story. How does this mystery, this message of the Gentiles being included, fit into Paul's story? You know, he starts this tangent by saying, assuming that you have heard. You know, many of the people in the Ephesian church were probably there when Paul was ministering, um, but some of them may not have been. The church had probably grown since Paul had been there, and this letter was sent to other people too. But I'll bet, even if they hadn't met Paul personally, a lot of them had heard his story, because it's a quite striking story. Kids, do you know the story of how Paul became a Christian? It starts with him hating the Christians and persecuting them. He was the number one enemy of the church because he thought that they were a heretical form of Jewish belief. But then one day, Paul gets on his donkey with a bunch of soldiers, and he's headed to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. And boom, Jesus shows up and just knocks him off his donkey in a blaze of light But then Jesus also sends this man named Ananias, who, by the way, he's not even a pastor or anything. He's just a regular believer. And God says, go talk to Paul and share the gospel with him. And Ananias does. And Ananias restores Paul's sight because he was blinded by the vision. And so Paul becomes a Christian. And not just a Christian, but Jesus chooses him as an apostle, one of the people specially commissioned to bring his message to The nations. You know, it seems like God had a purpose in choosing such an unlikely apostle for this job. Something about Paul's experience had uniquely prepared him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, first of all, Paul had been willing to go all the way with his theology before, with a totally zealous commitment to the point of shedding blood, other people's, not his own. And he'd been very, very wrong. And now imagine what it's like for the the Jewish church when they start having to readjust their theology and realize that the people that they've treated like outsiders, whoops, God's actually, that's where God's been working. Paul was already there. (laughs) He'd already had that dramatic turnaround. What's more, Paul's deep knowledge of his own sin led him to a deep understanding of God's grace. In verse 8, Paul describes himself as the very least of all the saints. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says that he ranks first among sinners. You know, nobody becomes a Christian or is made an apostle because of their own merit, because they deserved it. But boy, did Paul know that. He understood the depths of his own sinfulness. And so, he saw his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles as an amazing, extravagant, free gift of grace. In verse 2, he calls it the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. In verse 7, he says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And then in verse 8, to me, this grace is given. I don't know if you guys are picking up an emphasis there. This is a free gift of grace. Paul never forgot his own insufficiency for the ministry God had given him in his own power. He only succeeded in anything he did by the working of God's power. It was God who was going to have to give the growth if his preaching was going to have any fruit. And this is a truth we all need to internalize, of course. Everything we have been given in Jesus is a gift of free grace. But I think those who've known the depth of their sin know this truth more deeply. Maybe you remember the story about when Jesus visited the house of a Pharisee. And while he was eating at this Pharisee's house, a woman came in and anointed his feet, and the Pharisee objected. But what did Jesus say? He said, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If we think that our sin is just a little thing, then our love, for God and other people will be little as well. But if we know that our sin is great, then our love will be great as well. Well, Paul knew that he'd been forgiven much, and so he loved much. He had a deep appreciation of God's grace. And I think this also explains why in the middle of his suffering, Paul feels intense thankfulness this is what he wants the Ephesians to know. This is why he interrupts his entire letter and goes on this tangent. When he says that he is a prisoner for their sake, the whole, you know, the whole reason he was imprisoned in the first place is because he ruffled feathers about his inclusion of the Gentiles. He was falsely accused of bringing a, a, a Greeks into the temple, which he didn't do. But that was obviously the whole thing that was upsetting people about him. It was because he was standing up for Gentiles that he got in prisons. But he doesn't feel resentful about that. Instead, he feels incredibly grateful to serve them in this way. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. All Paul's suffering is worth it to him, because of his excitement about what God is doing among the Gentiles, that he is transforming them into the glorious image of Christ. It's all worth it for him. So he wants to make sure as he, he brings up the fact that he's been in prison for them, that they understand that it's something that he's grateful for. Okay, we don't have time for a lot of application here, but let me just, just stop briefly. Um, I think this shows some of the benefits of examining your own sinfulness in the light of God's grace. Let me ask you, are you as bad as Paul? Well, I mean, okay, the answer is probably no. I mean, probably you haven't persecuted the church. I think it's fair to say that, you know, there are degrees of sin. Um, However, we all have a sinfulness inside of us You know, what did the Scriptures say? Let the one who stands be careful, lest he fall. I don't think that we, you know, need to go trying to um, hunt and make things that aren't sins into sins so that we can, you know, lower ourselves as far as Paul. I'm not sure that's what true humility before God looks like, but I think that what we're at least encouraged to is to examine ourselves for real sinfulness and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we have sin in our hearts. And you know, it may be that God will do this for us at various times, for something that we were just completely blind to for years. Boom, he knocks us off our donkey, and we realize, oh my goodness, I was in sin the whole time. This is not something either that we're just called to to dwell in our own sin, but also we're called to look to God's grace. That as we learn our, the depths of our sinfulness, we also have a Savior who we can come to. And as we learn, oh, I'm not just, I don't just know theoretically I'm sinful, but I'm sinful in that way. And I did that sin. And I kept doing that sin for years. Now I know that God's grace is enough for that. So there is an encouragement here that there is a blessing when God shows our sin to us and drives us to Christ. But let's let's move on for now to point three, the manifold wisdom of God. Why did God carry out this plan, the mystery of Christ? Why did He do it? What were God's motives? Well, if we looked at all of the Bible passages, I think we could probably write a long list. But there's an interesting, unique one, I think, in this passage here in verse 10. So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So I'm not saying this is God's only reason, but it's one of them. The church reveals something about God's wisdom, and it's something that heavenly rulers and authorities they don't know. This is something they don't know about God until they look at the church. And what's specifically revealed is God's manifold wisdom. The Greek word here is polypoikolos, which I, I'm, I'm, I just think it's fun to say, polypoikolos. Try saying that five times fast. But what it means is, is variegated or, or, or multicolored or many splendors. Uh, for example, it's a good word to describe a tapestry woven from many colorful threads or to use for Joseph's coat of many colors. Another way that we could put the same word would be diverse. Now, there's a lot of buzz about diversity out there in the world today. Um, we are very diversity conscious, or at least we're trying to be. Uh, and we hear people talking about diversity in the church, too. And maybe you've wondered if we're talking about diversity in the church, if you get a letter from Wallace session talking about diversity in the church, uh, or hear a pastor talk about that, is that just something we're bringing in from outside because it's so popular in the world? Or is it actually in the Bible? Well, here we go. Here's, I mean, not the only passage, but one of them. Um, We have right here in our passage today the fact that God's wisdom is many-colored. It's diverse. Which means that if we're concerned about how to think about or respond to diversity in our congregation here at Wallace, in a good way, which I hope we are, then we better listen up. (laughs) We have a chance to hear what the Bible has to say about this and uh, build our thinking about it on a biblical basis. So what does this passage say about diversity? Well, first, notice that Paul leads into verse 10 from verse 9 by naming God as the one who created all things. I think this is a hint that we can already see God's love for diversity in the vast diversity of created things that there are in the world's. God didn't create a world that was just, you know, say one kind of action figure over and over again in neat little boxes. There's not just one kind of thing in the world, there's many kinds of things. And God's created all different kinds of people. Paul said back in chapter 1 that God's plan in redemption was to unite all things in Christ. But only in the church does this plan become fully revealed. And so, if we want to know what God thinks about diversity, we just have to look at church. The people He saved from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. As our confession said this morning, it's not limited to one place. It's not limited to one kind of people. Obviously, God has a bigger vision than that. You know, this is one of the reasons that I actually like going to church on Sunday when I'm traveling in a different part of the world. Because there's something so special about that experiencing, about experiencing the unity I have in Christ with a group of people that are so different than me. And the service is in a different language, and the songs are are different, and so much about it is different, but we all share a oneness in Christ. It reminds me that what God is doing in the world is just way bigger. He's doing all of these things that I don't even think about or realize are happening. When I'm, you know, back here in a College Park in Maryland, United States, focused on the things in my immediate vicinity. And I think what Paul says here implies that we can't really understand the fullness of God's wisdom unless we uh, fellowship with people who are different than we are. We need diversity because we are not God. You know, in God, I, I don't think there's really diversity. I mean, there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're perfectly unified there's no differences between them. But we're not like that. Created beings, we can't. none of us can really fully image who God is. And so we each image God in a different way. And if we want to understand some of the fullness about who God is, that means we're going to need some of the different puzzle pieces that he's put in the world. Now, I'm talking about how the church can show us God's diverse wisdom, but notice our passage focuses on something a bit different. Something that maybe seems a bit strange to you, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hmm. So Paul's actually saying that angelic beings who look at the church have something to learn about God's wisdom. It's Kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, it raises one question right away. Is Paul talking about the good angels or the bad angels here? Uh, is he saying that the holy angels in heaven who look on God's face continually, if they turn and look downward to the church, that they'll learn something about God that they haven't learned for eons past? Actually, that's a completely biblical idea. You know, the Apostle Peter says that the preaching of the gospel contains things into which angels long to look. I wonder if there's a couple of angels up there right now. I wonder if they like our sanctuary because there's lots of room. Actually, I don't know how much room it takes for an angel, but that, that's a tangent. By the way, guys, if you're looking for Tim Keller's church, it's about 200 miles uh, northeast. So, Actually, though, um, Paul seems to focus more on, in, in this book, when we see rulers and authorities, it, it seems that he's usually talking about the bad angels. So this is, it's a biblical idea that the angels look... At the preaching of the gospel, they look at the church and they see something new about God, Paul may be focusing specifically on demonic powers here. And if that's what's going on, then this is not a welcome knowledge to them. When they look at the church, they learn some very bad news about their project of thwarting God's wisdom in the world. If you've known me for a while, you'll know this subject of fallen angels is something in the Bible that is kind of a pet project for me. And I think we can bring in something from Daniel chapter 10 that might give some helpful context here. Um, there's this very strange moment where Daniel's praying, and then this angel comes to him. But the first thing the angel says to him, sorry I'm late. I was delayed for 21 days by somebody called the prince of the kingdom of Persia until Michael, one of the top angels, came and helped me. That's what the angel tells Michael that tells Daniel. It's like the, the, we're, we're seeing into this normally hidden realm of, uh, a, of, of angelic forces that we don't usually. Um, and then later on, that same angel, he says, I'm going now to fight the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, and Michael's going to help me. And why do I bring up this rather… Only, only one of the many weird things in the book of Daniel… Um, Well, there's a lot that's mysterious about these angels' comments, but short history lesson here. Persia is the big empire that was controlling the entire ancient Near East at that time. But Greece were the up-and-comers. This uh, young, crazy 20-something named Alexander the Great was about to build a massive empire and knock the Persians out of contention. So, the angel seems to be revealing that there are dark spiritual powers behind this geopolitical struggle. It's not to say that the nations of Greece or Persia are somehow inherently evil, or that it's bad to be Greek or Persian or anything, instead it suggests that there's a larger spiritual struggle going on behind the geopolitics that are happening. Also, notice that the the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece in the passage are on the same side. Even though the countries are fighting each other in real life. Now, that's really interesting because what it implies is that the rise and fall of empires is actually just a con that these d- demonic powers are running in order to keep humans hostile to each other and killing each other. Both of them are on the side against Michael and his angels. Greece may be Persia, but sooner or later the Romans will come along. Eventually, every empire goes from winner to loser but it's the house that always wins in the end. These demonic powers who keep the whole dark world system turning. Okay, well, whether you agree with me or not, we can talk more about the book of Daniel if you want. Imagine what it would be like for these world powers when they saw the church. Somehow, you have Jews and Greeks and Romans, and Scythians, and Egyptians, and Celts, all join together, and the hostility between them has been killed. That's the only thing that could tear down their system. It reveals that God has had a plan to beat them all along. This is the manifold wisdom of God revealed in the church. You know, we could turn to this point, and apply this text by talking about what we should do to pursue unity and value each other's diversity. We could do that. Um, And I think there's a lot of Bible passages that are about that. But I also think Ryan was completely right last week when he pointed out that that's not what Paul does here in the beginning of Ephesians. Instead, Paul focuses on the fact that this reality is something that has somehow been definitively accomplished in Jesus already, apart from our works. Uh, It's something that uh, has happened past tense, you know, when he says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, God's eternal purpose, his wise plan, it was realized, literally he did it, in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a past tense there. In whom this is the relevance, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So God's already done this in Jesus, past tense, and now we have, through faith, bold and confident access. We can come to God. Even though the Gentiles were previously excluded, now they can come to God. It's not something that had been achieved by human beings. It is something that God had just done. Ultimately, we're not the ones that build this unity. God is the one who builds this unity. It's Jesus who gave his life to save Gentile and Jew alike. It's Jesus who is the one who took all the hostility this world had to offer, all of the hate for the outsider, for the person who's different. Jesus took it all into his flesh and killed it on the cross. Jesus is the one who made a way for us to come to God with boldness and confidence, since our acceptance with God isn't based on what nation we belong to, or what family we were born into. It's not based on our works, it's not based on what we can do, it's just based on our faith in who Jesus is. And when we do believe, Jesus is the one who commissions the church to go into the world and make disciples of people from every nation. And he's the one who will knock us off our donkeys if we aren't doing that right. He has a way of building his church even when we aren't cooperating. You know, individual members or pastors or congregations or denominations may do a better or a worse job of living in light of this reality. But what this means is that there's a power in Jesus that's always at work in the church. Sometimes this means even despite the bad job the leadership is doing. You know, I love this story in Acts when Peter, I mean, he, he's, he's doing what God told him. He's preaching to the Gentiles. But then suddenly... They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as they're listening to his preaching. And all of the Jewish believers there are amazed, because for everybody in the book of Acts so far, they had to get baptized, and maybe even have the apostles lay hands upon them before they got the gift of the Holy Spirit. But here are these Gentiles, they were just listening to the Word, and boom, it happened. Holy Spirit got ahead of the leadership there, I think intentionally, to make a point. Um, And I've been thinking about this. This is a great encouragement. This is just the way God operates. Um, This week I've been reading some of the writings of James W.C. Pennington, who was an African-American pastor in the Presbyterian Church in the 19th century. And by the way, if um, the Prince of Greece and the Prince of Persia were specifically finding ways to keep hostility between those nations, I think we can probably guess to some of what the Prince of America, if there is a, a spirit assigned to that role might have been doing for the last few hundred years. James Pennington was enslaved. In fact, not 40 miles west of here in the state of Maryland, he and his whole family were enslaved until he escaped and uh, made it to the north. He had never heard about Jesus because his master did not allow his slaves to hear, to go to church or hear about who Jesus was. And yet, once he escaped from slavery, he did hear the gospel and was converted and became a pastor, and I was reading, especially as his biography of his his, his story of his escape from slavery and his the appendix where he talked. To, he writes a letter to his parents and brothers and sisters who are still in slavery, and it's not a letter he was ever able to deliver to them. Um, it's not he he tried to buy their freedom but was not able. But it's what he would he wanted to say if he could. Um, And it's both anguishing, but also inspiring in its faith. I have some quotes I want to read now. He says, I indulge the hope that it will afford you some consolation to know that your son and brother is yet alive, that God has dealt wonderfully and kindly with me in all my way. He has made me a Christian and a Christian minister. And thus I have drawn my support and comfort from that blessed Savior, who came to preach good tidings unto the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Pennington has this amazing gratefulness for what God has done in his life, and he goes on, My dear father and mother, I have very often wished, while administering the holy ordinance of baptism to some scores of children brought forward by doting parents, that I could see you with yours among the number. Some of the real tragedy He wasn't able to share the gospel with his parents. He wasn't able to baptize them. Later on, he says, The wonderful purple stream which flowed for the healing of the nations has a branch for us. Nay, is Christ divided? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. God's grace wasn't just for the white inhabitants of the country. It was something that had come to him. It wasn't something that could be kept from him. Later on, he says, "'But you say that you have not the privilege "'of hearing of this gospel of which I speak. "'I know it, and that is my great grief. "'But you shall have it. "'I will send it to you by my humble prayer. "'I can do it. "'I will beg our Heavenly Father, "'and he will preach this gospel to you "'in his holy providence.'" There's something about that especially that that caught me and reminded me of my passage here. You know, um, the Holy Spirit didn't ask the permission of the learned theologians at Yale or Princeton before he went and saved this man and made him his minister. And Pennington has this real sense that God can be at work even when the church is failing so badly that he can go and find his own. And isn't it a testimony to the fact that God was at work, that we have ministers like Pennington that we can look to. God built his church, even if so many believers were completely ignoring him. So that's what I want to point us the fact that Christ is building his church this morning, even when we fail. And it's because God's the one who values diversity in the church, a church of every nation and language, that he won't allow it to be thwarted by anything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ, for your compassion, for those who have been excluded, to bring them in, to show them your mercy. Lord, that's, that's all of us this morning. None of us deserved it. All of us are by nature your enemies, and yet you have made us yours. We pray that you would help us to remember what you have done for us, and to remember the manifold wisdom of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.